Well, good morning, North Canton Chapel. How are you today? What an incredible service so far, huh? I mean, I hear Mary's story and I just get excited. I mean, I, I could go home. Like, I'm good. What an incredible testament to the work of Jesus that changes lives. Well, it is good to be with you here this morning. We're in chapter four of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. We've been in this series called Worth the Risk over the last few weeks. So we're going to be in chapter four of the book of Philippians. Uh, And before I I begin, I want to thank Pastor Ryan. Uh, Thanks for the honor to speak from this space on the stage to grow in these giftings. Um, It is not something that I take lightly. um, And so I consider it a privilege to be here with you today and to be able to open God's word and to teach from it. So back in November, I actually spoke on this same text, and, uh, and that was not intentional. We didn't plan for that to double up. It's just kind of how it worked, but last time I spoke, I spoke on Philippians 4, 4 through 7, and we learned that true joy only comes from Jesus. Um, and so today, that was a simple, profound truth that we learned then. Today, we're going to look a bit more into the text. We're going to look at verses 2 through 9. And there's a different perspective that we're going to gain today, and that's one of the beauties of Scripture, is that no matter how many times you go back to the same passage, there are sometimes different ways that God can reveal his truth and guide us into how we follow him rightly. So if you would, please turn in your copy of God's Word or scroll on your phone if that's your thing um, to Philippians chapter 4. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, there should be a Bible under the seat in front of you or at least in a seat nearby you. Um, you are welcome to that. If you do not own a copy of God's Word uh, on that is yours, you may keep that. That's just our gift to you. Uh, please take that with you today. If you are able, please stand with me in honor and respect of God's Word as I read this passage out loud, beginning in verse 2. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received, and heard, and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Pray with me, please. God and Father, Lord of all things, you and you alone are worthy of our praise and our devotion, and this morning we ask that the Holy Spirit would reveal to us the truths that are found within this text and that we as your church would apply these truths to our lives. We pray that we would live them out with the joy that only comes from you, Jesus. And we pray these things not for our glory, but for yours. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we've been on a little bit of an adventure, digging through this text over the last few weeks. 
Um, and I would encourage you, if you've missed some of the weeks of this Philippian series, go back, download the podcast, head to the church website and listen to these. It's been an incredibly encouraging and uplifting series. At least it has been for me. I hope it has been for you as well. Uh, but we've learned a few things over the last couple of weeks, context-wise, that are very important for us as we look into the text today. Uh, we know that this letter is written to a church that Paul planted. And this account of his planting is in, is in Acts chapter 16. And so we know that this is a group of people that Paul has invested in, the people that he's writing to. He's invested in them. So Paul didn't just walk into the random Philippi giant eagle, find some guy at the deli and go, hey, you want to plant a church? Like that's, that's not how this works. He intentionally proclaims the gospel and he grows these new converts in the faith. He has poured himself into them intentionally because Paul is always focused on mission. He's always focused on the kingdom and its causes because Paul knew that the church was not about one earthly man, it was about Jesus. He knew that it was about making much of him every day to everyone. In the same way, the North Canton Chapel is not about any one man. It is not about me. It's not about Pastor Ryan or Dave or Brandon. It's not about our student directors, Alex and Dan, or our children's ministry team with Judy and Beth and Sam. It's not about our deacons or our elders. And my friends, it's not about you or me. It is about Jesus. This is why we exist. The church exists to glorify God and to make him known by proclaiming the good news of the gospel and making disciples who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples until Jesus returns for his church. This is why we exist. The North Can Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. That means that we gather together in this room to scatter out from this room. We gather together to scatter out to go out and to proclaim the good news of Jesus in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools and sports leagues, in our local gym locker rooms, and even when we are standing in line ordering our lattes, everything that we do must make much of Jesus. We're called to go out. And Paul knew that these young converts in Philippi needed to grasp this truth. And so he took these new believers and he discipled them. He equipped them and empowered them and sent them out to embark on the mission that God had for them that he had planned before the beginning of time. See, Paul was growing the family of God. And I believe that in the first two verses in this section of scripture, this is why we see Paul doing a little bit of fatherly discipline and mentorship. See, we gather from the text that Euodia and Syntyche are in a bit of a disagreement in verse 2. Over what, we are not sure, but Paul calls upon the established community to do what communities were created to do, to guide in truth and the reconciliation of the gospel. Help these women, Paul says. He reminds them of the work that they have been called to and the work that they have labored in together. He calls them to renounce the rebellion of dissension that is between them and to instead repent, reconcile, and return to the intended ways of Jesus for them. See, Paul speaks to them as family because they are family. Sometimes in families there are disagreements. 
At least there are in my house. I don't know about yours. Sometimes our disagreements are, are we going to play Monopoly Deal or are we going to play Dutch Blitz? Right? Any Dutch Blitz fans in the house? So few. Oh, this is a travesty. So few of you. Uh, other times it's, are we going to watch the new Spider-Man movie or are we going to watch Frozen for the 3,000th time? Um, and as a father of my daughters, I've been disciplining them and telling them they need to let it go. It's, it's too, it was too easy. Come on. It's too easy. Sorry. Um, but no, other times family disagreements get heated, right? Sometimes there are slammed doors and raised voices, and there are harsh words that are thrown out like daggers. See, no one knows how to wound like family. And Paul knows that family reconciliation is essential. It is essential to the vitality of the church if it is to move forward. So if you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus, let us never forget who brought us to the table. That it was our Father who brought us to the table, gave us a seat at the table together, and he gave us these beautiful, messy relationships to steward well. Let us remember that you and I as believers in Jesus, we are not like family. We are family. Sometimes we may not like that. (laughs) Right? But if we take a cue from Paul, it seems like we must choose joy, trust, humility, and forgiveness on behalf of each other for the sake of the gospel. We must seek to dive into grace and truth as we grow together in Christ, and we must together learn to set aside childish arguments and embrace the intended ways of Jesus for us. This is essential for our vitality as a local expression of the body of Christ, as the North Canton Chapel. This is vital for us. We cannot get family wrong. And see, I believe Paul first deals with this disagreement between these women in this text because he models for us that as we approach the throne of grace, before we do this, we must first make our hearts right both personally and communally. We are a body, and we are not intended to pursue personal holiness alone. We were never meant to do this apart from community. From the very, very beginning of creation, God creates Adam and he says it is not good for man to be alone. We were never meant to do it alone. Paul knows that before he guides in the truth that we are about to dig into in the rest of this text, community heart work needs to be done because it is too important to the mission. It is too important important. See, when we have a deep gospel knowledge and we don't live it out, when we have a head knowledge of scripture but no one wants to be around us because of our arrogance, when we claim Jesus but treat our brothers and sisters in the church like garbage, we spit on the banner that Jesus has established as his church We drag the truth and the love and the grace of the cross through the mud and we are guilty of pushing people away from the life-giving hope of the gospel of Jesus because we can't get our stuff together and act like family. 
We are to live as the church, not like the church. Church is not something we do on the weekend. It is who we are. We cannot get family wrong. Because Paul wants us to not forget that how we treat each other is a direct reflection of Jesus to the world. They will know we are Christians by our love in the year 2019 has too often been warped to they will know that we are Christians because of our shouting and our bullhorns and our Facebook rants and our hatred and our political allegiances. My brothers and sisters, we are called to be light in darkness. We are called to be hope to hopelessness. But too often the church is not known by its love. It's known by what it's against. Now hear me clearly. I am not saying that we ignore sin. Don't hear me saying that. Jesus never ignored sin. Jesus went to the most sinful people and met them with grace and truth and love and forgiveness. We are those sinful people, by the way. He came to us with grace and truth and love and forgiveness. Scripture reminds us that there are none that are righteous apart from the saving work of Jesus. In fact, the only time that I, that I know of that Jesus ever allowed this holy fury to truly stir within himself is when he was frustrated at people who claimed to be followers of God, but emphasized rules and religion and regulations above the law and above, above love. They forgot the why. They did all the right things and forgot why they were doing them in the first place. They forgot that it was all about God. They elevated law over love. And my friends, that is not how we are to exist. That is not who we are to be. We need to be in the business of pulling planks from our own eyes before we go shouting at others about theirs. We're only through verse three. I got six more to go. You guys okay? I love you. I really do. I know this is heavy right out of the gate, but it's, hear me, this is too important. I think it's why Paul starts with it. Because family is the easiest thing to ignore and the hardest thing to get right. We can have all the right doctrine and the right theology and treat each other like garbage. And it's all for naught. This is why Paul begins here. Verse four, let's keep going. Uh, Verse four is where we learn that true joy only comes from Jesus. Cairo is the Greek word for rejoice in this verse. And this is a joy that is is, uh, reflective of our salvation. It is a joy that comes from knowing Jesus. It's a joy that should ooze from the life of a Jesus follower. Verse four says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. You know, too often we walk around with these perpetual frowns. We're like Eeyore, declaring that the sky is falling and the world is ending and we should all just lay down, ignore it, let it happen. We do this. My friends, Jesus followers, those who have received the salvation that only comes from knowing Jesus should be the most joy-filled people on the planet. Because we, what we have received is greater than anything that you can gain on your own. Joy should flow from us as followers of Jesus. 
because we have this joy, verses five through seven take us to the application or the overflow of that joy. They teach us what does it mean for us. Look at the text. In verse five, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The overflow of the joy of salvation within us should result in a confidence that our God is sovereign over all that we face currently and all we will face in the future. God is in complete control. The future can scare us, can't it? It's unknown, it's uncertain. And we get afraid of things that we don't know. And my daughter Riley, just this week, came down the stairs after we'd put her in bed and she was all upset and crying and I said, Riley, what's wrong? And she goes, Dad, there's a magic mouse in my room with glowing eyes, and I'm so, and I'm going, what? Like, what what do we let this kid watch when I'm at home? No. Um, And so I went upstairs, and if you have little ones, or you've been around little ones, you know this routine, right? You got to check under the bed, you got to look in the closet, you open up all the drawers, and you got to do it all again because you didn't do it right the first time. Like, Daddy, check again, check again. But I asked Riley something that I've been asking my daughters since they were very, very little, I said, Riley, why don't you have to be afraid? She said, Dad, because God is with me. And, and that's one of those things, I've tried to teach them that, and she may not completely get that yet, right? As a little kid, you maybe don't grasp all of that completely, but I want her to remember that truth, because there are times in life when the future seems uncertain, and we are unsure of what's next, and we get so afraid And we forget that God is always with us. As followers of Jesus, we don't have to be afraid. Verses five through seven remind us that we can have a reasonableness, a sense of calm and confidence about ourselves and our circumstances because as followers of Jesus, we trust that our future is not unknown. Our future is not unknown. But this requires a faith that is growing in Christ to truly grasp. It's a faith that anchors itself to God and all of his power and his might and his sovereignty. It's a faith that acknowledges the future is not a monster in the closet. To quote Pastor Matt Chandler, the future is a place where God is. The future is a place where God is. He is already there, and he is completely sovereign overall. So we don't have to be afraid because we are never alone. Paul teaches us how to grow in this faith. In verse 6, it says, In everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This is the discipline of a prayer that can call out with complete fear and trembling, Help me, help me, I don't know what to do, but... I know the one who does. Help me, I'm afraid. I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, but I know the one who brings tomorrow. But there's more to this prayer than just trusting in God that he will be there. It's a prayer of supplication with thanksgiving. And that means regardless of the outcome, 
regardless of the outcome, we will remain faithful and thankful to God. We will trust in his sovereignty even if it goes differently than we had hoped. Even if we pray one way and it doesn't turn out the way we prayed, we can trust that God still has what is best for us. When Riley was a little over one year old, uh, she was playing on the swivel chair that we had in our living room. And as she was playing, she was just kind of goofing off and she slipped and fell and hit her head on the base of this chair. And so I, I ran and I picked her up as fathers should. And I, and I pick her up and I start trying to calm her down. Riley, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And then all of a sudden, Riley just goes limp in my arms. Her eyes roll back in her head. She stops crying and her body just completely limp. Now, I don't know about you, but if you are a parent in this room, you understand that this type of helplessness that invades your body when your son or daughter is sick or hurt and you can't, you can't do anything about it, there is a unique helplessness that invades. And I remember grabbing her and just shaking, which is probably not a good idea, um, but shaking and just screaming, Riley, wake up, wake up. And I prayed in that moment, God, please let her be okay. Please let her be okay. And I had this strangest peace that came over my mind that she's gonna be okay, which didn't make any sense because she was still not moving. She woke up and came to, and I took her to the emergency room, and they gave her a red popsicle and basically said, yeah, she's fine. It's the most expensive popsicle I've ever bought. Like, <laughs> I could have done this at home. No, but she had hit this spot on her head that was like the, the if you're going to hit your head, it's the best spot ever. It jostled her and it, it made her pass out. Like, she was fine. Like, by and large, she's okay. I mean, she's a lot like me, so okay is relative. But it, by and large, she was fine. Now, as, as a dad, the peace that I felt in that moment, I believe came from Jesus. I believe that's a type of peace that only comes from knowing him that it's going to be Okay. And similarly, I was on the phone with my mom about eight months ago when she told me that the doctors had found a blockage in her liver that was causing her to be sick. And, and I knew from that conversation that this was kind of a different sort of sick, that something was off. And so I went out and I, I began uh, to kind of walk and process, sorry. I began to walk and process through what that was going to mean for my mom. And I remember praying and just going, God, what do we do? What do I do? And I heard, I, I don't even know if I've told Kristen this, I heard the strangest thing from the Holy Spirit. And I'm not like a super mystical guy, like that's not a thing for me. Um, but as clear as day in my soul I heard your mom has cancer. She'll be with me soon. It will be okay. And about four months later, she would pass from cancer. And through that entire season, the faith and the, the peace that God gave to my heart was completely unique to him. It was not something that comes naturally. And my mom is better now than she has ever been. Like, would I, would I prefer that she was here to watch my girls grow up? Absolutely. Absolutely. But the 
the fact that God is sovereign over my mom and her cancer, it affirms the truth of the gospel. Because of Jesus, every fear, hardship, sickness, trial, obstacle, depression, or despair that we could ever face, because of Jesus, there is an empty grave, and the risen one has overcome. There is a peace that only comes from Jesus as we face these things. Again, my mom is better now than she has ever been in her life. And she lived a life that was driven by faith in Jesus. So even though the outcome didn't go my way, I could still trust in God's sovereignty and goodness over my mom and over her cancer. This is a faith that rests in the peace of God that's described in verse 7. It's a peace that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ. It's a peace that my mom held to and a peace that she discipled me in holding to. It's a peace that guards our hearts and minds in him. And this, this is so important because this is a peace that only comes from Jesus. It is not a peace that comes from your devotion to your family. It is not a peace that comes in the things that you can gather in your home in financial stability or success. It is not a peace that comes from your work. It is not even a peace that comes from your devotion to the North Canton Chapel. It is a peace that only comes from Jesus. It makes me a little nervous, and hear, hear my heart when I say this. It makes, me, um, it makes me a little nervous when I say t-shirts that say things like, I love my church. Okay, and I get it, there's, there's like t-shirts that are out there, they say that, I love my church, and I understand why they exist. They exist because they want to start up a conversation, right? It's like, oh, hey, your church is awesome, you love your church, well, tell me about your church. You tell a person about said church, they come to said church, hopefully encounter Jesus. Like, I get it, it's good, it's okay. But it makes me nervous. Because my problem becomes when we talk more about our church than we do about Jesus. When I get more excited about the thing that is happening at my church building than I do about the thing that Jesus is doing in my heart, it makes me nervous. It makes me concerned for us because I believe it can lead our hearts to idolatry. And as a worship leader, there is nothing that concerns me more than the war that wages for our attentions, our allegiance, our affections. And I believe that Satan will go to great lengths to get us to declare an allegiance to anything other than Jesus. Even getting us to worship the North Canton Chapel more than we worship Jesus. Friends, can we just make an agreement that we will never be guilty of this? Let us never talk of NCC more than we talk about Jesus. Let us never be more excited about what God does in this building than what God does in our own hearts and lives and through us. We must guard our hearts and our motives when it comes even to our gatherings together. We must be careful, cautious, because if we are not cautious, we can say things, and again, these are good things, but we can say things like, worship was really good today. 
The song that we sang, it really blessed my heart. I love that choir opener, that, that new song that the band played. If we're not careful, if we are not careful, we can make ourselves the object of our worship services. If we are not cautious, we can make the music that we sing, the sermon that was preached, our staff, an ABF or an MC, the object of our worship more than Jesus. If we're not careful, the idle factories of our hearts will have us determining whether or not worship was good based on how we felt. That is a dangerous place to begin because scripture tells us that our heart is deceitful above all things and that we cannot know it. So how we feel should not be where we begin. If we are not careful, we can quickly forget that our worship service is to be a service to God. That our worship services are not about us. They're not about me. They're not about you. It's about Jesus. They're not about style or preference or whether or not we thought the coffee that was free was up to par. Like it's, we have fought over sillier things. It is about Jesus. It is about Jesus and Jesus alone. And the moment that we forget that, may we burn it down and walk away. It is not about us. It is about him. I will be the first one standing here with a match, so help me. It is about Jesus and Jesus alone, and may we never forget it, church. Because far too many have made it about themselves, and they've forgotten that it was never about them to begin with. It was all about him. It was all about him. May we never be guilty of declaring our allegiance to a church or to our preferences. May we only declare our allegiance to our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Only. Because only in him do we find a peace that surpasses all understanding. Finally, brothers, in verse eight, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Why would Paul include this list? Isn't this something that we just intuitively get? Like, we get it, Paul, do good stuff. Why rehash this? Doesn't, don't we just know as Christ followers that these are things we're supposed to do? Paul Tripp has a quote that says, we all tend to believe that we are more righteous than we actually are. We don't like to think of ourselves as still in desperate need of God's rescuing grace. Let me say that again, do not miss this. We all tend to believe that we are more righteous than we actually are. We don't like to think of ourselves as still in desperate need of God's rescuing grace. This is the gospel, my friends. This is, the gospel is that you and I have sinned against God, that we have fallen away from his intended desires for us, and Jesus went to the cross and paid a debt that we could not pay so that we could be free. 
We are in desperate need of God's rescuing grace because we are sin-filled creatures and we are remarkably wretched and self-focused. And we forget. We forget to think on things that are good, that are pure, that are lovely. We fall away. And every time we sin, we stand in rebellion against the God of the universe and we look at him and we say, I am God, not you. Every time we sin, we stand in the presence of the God of the universe and we say, I am God, not you. We say, I am better at your job than you are. And we sit in a throne that is not ours. You're like, Micah, it's just a little bit of sin. It's not that big of a deal. It is. Because our sin took Jesus to the cross. Grace is not cheap, my friends. It cost him everything. And the Apostle Paul is writing this to the church. He's writing this to followers of Jesus. He doesn't take this tone with those who are pagan idol worshipers. He knows that the idol factories of our hearts are far too adept at cranking out new idols over and over and over again that we willingly bow down to. He reminds us of the rescuing, redeeming grace of Jesus that we desperately, desperately need so that we can constantly rest in the hope and the truth of the gospel that we might become more like Jesus every day. Verse nine, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The gospel is to be lived out. We are to walk with each other in community thinking on these things. This is not a one-time thing. This is why Paul repeats this over and over. These are things to be practiced over and over. What you have learned and received and heard and seen, these are not things that are natural. We don't come out of the womb thinking on things that are honorable and lovely and pure and good. We are sinful from birth and all in the need of the redeeming grace of Jesus. We must practice these things. And when we fall off the bike, if you will, we don't sit and cry with skinned knees. We brush ourselves off and we get back on the bike to ride again because Jesus is the one who is teaching us to ride. Because we all get it wrong. If we could get it right all the time, we wouldn't need Jesus. But because of his sanctifying work in us, because of his desire to not leave us as we are, because of his desire that he has intended ways for us that are better than we could have ever imagined, we get back up and we practice it over and over. It's a process. We must do the work of working out our salvation, of growing in Christ so that the peace of God will be with us. We cannot know and experience the peace of God through Jesus Christ unless we know him as our Savior and our Lord. Unless we know him as the anthem of our hearts and the anchor of our souls. The band is going to come, and in John 6, it says this, beginning in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And in verse 44 it reads, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Today, if by the Holy Spirit, the Father is drawing you to Jesus, if today you realize that you are a sinner, unable to pay the debt that you owe, would you turn your eyes to Jesus? Would you place by faith your trust in his complete redeeming work, that he has paid the price for your sin on the cross? Would you hear the voice of the good shepherd and come to him? As we sing today, maybe you would come forward and you would repent and you would accept the free gift of salvation. Maybe today you need to place your hope in Jesus. For those of you in the room who are followers of Jesus, my brothers and sisters, may we all remember that we are not as righteous as we tend to believe that we are. May we repent of our sins and be reminded of the forgiveness that comes from the love and the grace extended to us by Jesus. Maybe you need to come forward today in adoration and thanks, thanking Jesus for his work in you. Maybe as a follower of Jesus, it's been a while since you've just said, I'm sorry, I fell off the bike a while ago and I haven't gotten back on. Jesus, would you pick me up and guide me forward in this life? I don't want anything to be about me. I want it to all be about you. Whatever it is, respond. Move. Allow Jesus to do the work in your heart that he needs to do. Let's stand as we sing.